Hey, welcome to the Not Enough Design. Are we still calling it Not Enough Design? For now, I guess. For now, let's do it. Uh, this is Rohith. And I am Irina. And how are you doing, Irina? Oh, I'm doing well. I was just uh, talking with my colleagues the other day about how it's a strange phrase to persist in times that the nation is clearly not doing well. But it's just one of those phrases. My counter to their point was like, well, in Chinese, the general greeting is, have you eaten? So it doesn't necessarily need to be taken literally. <laughs> so like when I say, how are you or answer how I am, as fine. I think it's more of a, like a social formality, right? That's so yeah, I'm doing point. fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's great because the point you made about the whole, have you eaten thing? I, I get angry at my mom because whenever I call her, that's all she asks me. Like, have you eaten? What have you eaten? I think that's such a, like an Asian thing, but it's also because she cares so much. And I think that I, I, I don't know. I feel like personally that caring makes me angry for some reason. Like, why do you care about me so much? Like care less, leave me alone a little bit. But then, you know, anyway. Um, yeah, let's, I wanted to talk a little bit about like how we met because we both went to RISD, um, the MID, that's the Masters of Industrial Design program, uh, which started in like the worst time for Providence is January. <laughs> it's like a desolate yep. white desert, um, which was like a weird contrast for me because it was the first time I was in America, never been here before. And I spent like the New Year's in New York City with my parents. And then suddenly I was in this small town, Providence, and it's like white. Brown was Brown University was off for their holidays and there was nobody on the streets. I'm like... You know, I, I remember telling my mom, please don't leave me here. <laughs> you know? Oh, but, gosh. <laughs> but no, yeah, but it's then, super weird. Yeah, I know. But then immediately I was like, like I've, I've said this to you guys before, like immediately the first day when we all met the winter session, like the seven or 12 of us, it was like, I immediately felt that warmth, that connection, the weirdness. It was like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Was, in some ways, I think because we started in winter session, which is just means like the campus was pretty empty. Um, and us being a very small fraction of the eventual graduating cohort, for me, I think it would have been more overwhelming if we joined at a normal like school start time um, with everyone coming in for the first time, like tons of little freshmen running around. I think coming into a super seemingly abandoned tiny town covered in snow and then just having really intensive you know, every day for however many hours we were in studio together. And then after studio in the workshop, just like the core group of us, I thought that was a really, um, it's probably one of the most memorable semesters of the entire degree for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think I didn't know that that was the first time. Sorry. I didn't know that that was the first time you, uh, were in the States at all. Cause you know so much about American 
culture that I just assumed that you'd been here a lot when you were a kid. And that that goes to say a lot about American media and the influence of like Hollywood, Hollywood and stuff, because I grew up on like Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon and all of those things. And it's like also growing up on movies and stuff. You know, sometimes I like, my, there's this phrase uh, where my mom in, in Bengali, she says this, but it tra- directly translates to like, I am the Anglo child of like a Bengali mother. And it's oh. like, I know more about like the American culture than I know about the Indian culture. Not because I don't know anything. I know a lot about the Indian culture, but comparatively, but also because I went to like a Catholic school growing up. Mm. And so I also well versed with the Bible, the New Testament. Mm. Yeah, Are you um, Western. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I back think, to uh, the. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I didn't really grasp the 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 totality of American cultural exports until to the rest of the world until I lived outside of the States, obviously. I think in Taiwan, it was um, a little bit more shielded from obvious Western influence when I was growing up. Now it's a different story. But when I was living in London, like the amount of cultural references that I thought would be specific to me and my demographic in my home, you know, hometown in Florida, like I was surprised at how much everyone from the UK knew about what I was talking about and how little that worked in reverse. You know, it's like, I I mean, besides obviously the big musical exports of the UK, they're, they're culturally, there was such an imbalance. It was almost creepy to me. I was like, I don't know that America should be allowed to have this much cultural influence over all the other people in the world in this emotional way, you know? Um, yeah. It was yeah, especially like shows like The Friends have permeated through cultures. It's like everybody knows about The Friends and everybody connect in a way. But even if you like watch Friends objectively from like as an American, I think it's like there are so many, you know, little things there which are so inherently American as a culture. Mm-hmm. But everybody still relates to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think, I don't know if it's good or bad, but, you know, when was the first time you yeah. went to Taiwan? Because you were born here in the States. Yeah, I was born in Florida. I went back every summer from the time I was, from the year I was born, I think, until, um, actually, I was born in the summer, so it must have been the year after that. Um, but I would go very regularly until about high school time. Um, and we, I remember the first summer I skipped was, um, when SARS was happening over there. Um, and it wasn't safe to travel, which I guess that was the closest thing that (laughs) to the current pandemic that I've sort of experienced any sort of ramifications from, but yeah, it was from an early age. Um, yeah, I feel pretty grateful for that. It definitely made me hyper aware of a very, very, very different type of living happening outside of America, which I don't think a lot of uh, people have the privilege to see that um, from inside America, especially. Yeah. Do you think your like childhood and these cultural experiences had anything to do with you wanting to go into like industrial design or or design in general? Because you have a graphic design background before ID. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hard to say. I actually, I don't think it's, 
inherently connected to the design piece. I think it is connected to the root of why I love design, which is that you get to kind of do a little bit of everything mm-hmm. in terms of like you get to dip into other industries and other professions. Um, and I think in the same way, travel used to be a big part of my identity um, in terms of like dipping in and out of different cultures. I think, I think there's a lot about that that seems very naive looking, looking back on it. Um, and certainly very, very lucky um, for me to able to build that in is such a defining feature of myself but but yeah I think definitely the wanderlust mindset um, (laughs) is the same is the same thing that is behind why I love being a designer yeah Yeah. you get to kind of move around what about you I think uh I don't know like just because I asked you right now I'm like thinking back to my childhood and I think maybe it was like a cultural impact like growing up in India because in India, what happens is a lot of the times uh, you don't really buy, when I was growing up at least, now you have like a hundred stores that you can buy furniture from. But when I was growing up, you would like call the family carpenter in who's probably like made furniture for your grandparents and now they're going to make furniture for you. And they would like work in the garage downstairs with wood and with the wood plane. And I would like go down, watch them and play with the fracus you know and um <laughs> and just like ha- like growing this fascination towards tools and woodworking i think that's how it kind of started but also a lot of my family was in the tea gardens so my uncle was also a manager for a tea garden and so every uh, not every summer but then some summers we would visit the gardens in assam um they were like exporters of assam tea and uh, we would visit the factories and there would be these huge tumblers like tumbling weed and the processing is called CTC. That's the black ground tea that we get. So it's like crushed, torn, and I forget, curled. And so each mm. of those three processes have different machinery and the smell of the factory and the big machines. And the moment I entered like the RISD metal shop, all those like memories rushed back as, you know, when we saw yeah. those World War II lathes and the CNC machine, yeah. stuff like that. It's, uh, yeah, I think just love for like, I used to also collect uh, old hardware, like switches. And I had mm-hmm. this like set that I made of old Crabtree switches. I bought like a vintage flick one and then a new one. And it, that was like my... Uh, piece on my desk like the evolution of switches and I was like that's the nerdiest oh. thing ever but like it's that love for like objects right and I think and I think subconsciously that was built in because initially I started off as like a management consultant which has nothing to do with collecting crab tree switches you know but yeah but going back to like our design school um, I was thinking back to it and it's like you know now in hindsight uh, going through what we've been through, you know, losing a couple of students from our cohort. And I think a lot of that relates to what we learn at the design school. Like going in, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd learn to design. But I think what RISD did, and I think that's what RISD does best, is instead of teaching you how to do things, they teach you kind of how to think about design and how to think about objects. So I wonder how your experience has been. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it, early on, I remember there was the perhaps unfair saying, um, I think during our NASA studio, it came up a couple times where it was like, uh, undergrads, industrial design undergrads are uh, quick to make and slow to think. <laughs> and industrial design grads are quick to think and slow to make. And I mm. don't know if that's because of the type of people that seek a master's degree pivoting from somewhere else and that being inherently different than leaving home for the first time and wanting to start a, like a brand new career from what you think you know. So yeah, I, I, I will say that the thread of our cohort was regardless of whether people stayed or left, it was everyone had a love of objects and making and material, but they ended up having a tortured relationship with that in some way. Um, I say tortured because it was, it was complicated and it was hard to square one with the other, but I think ultimately that is what RISD is good at in terms of addressing what the future of the world is and what the role of designers should be in order to match that future trajectory versus like, you know, we aren't dealing with the same problems that were born in the industrial revolution where the problems were just like, we need new furniture. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's a complicated curriculum and a complicated set of lessons to learn and take away, but it matches the complicated world now that we're in. So it makes sense to me. I, I do think that yeah, you're right. The learning part wasn't so straightforward, but I don't know. Did you expect that of RISD's program when you came into it? Um, because it was something that I, I chose the degree particularly from our course because I knew that it would be non-traditional in that way. But I know mm -hmm. that other people in our class were more surprised <laughs> or yeah. um, it didn't yeah. meet their expectations. Yeah. So what did you go into it with? I think for me, like, I didn't know what to expect because for my undergrad, I studied economics and like psychology mm. and sociology, which is like another world in a way. It's yeah. all related, but like it has nothing to do with the, the course, the way it's set up, the way we learn, the, the how long the classes go on for. It's like all different. And so I really came in with no expectation, but I kind of like went with the flow and I kind of loved that. My, my design process is kind of weird where I even my work ethic it's like I work well under pressure like a lot of us but I also like work well without clear instructions because mm -hmm. I kind of like to navigate and meander through the process and figure it out for myself which I understand can be like frustrating for a lot of people because a lot of people coming into design school paying the you know hefty tuition they do expect like some kind of clear um clear cut like hey this is design this is id this is how we started mm -hmm. and this is where we are now which i understand and i do and i do want in the future maybe like if RISD could make the history of id compulsory for everybody mm -hmm. because you know, if you're accepting students from all backgrounds, like a lot of people were not from a design background, uh, 
not not a lot but like some were and like for me i have no idea about the history of id and i tried so very hard to get into that class but that's such a popular class that it was like it was super hard for me to do it and i couldn't in the two and a half years and i know you did and um and i know you love the class though but i think I it would be it would be very beneficial to do that but also like coming back to the thing you said about the undergrads being good at making and the technical part of it and the graduates more towards the thinking and i think that also has to do a lot with um the age difference between the two groups and studios especially like nasa um are are so very beneficial because then you have the the two kind of melding together to work towards it like i learned so much about working with cardboard and soft yeah. soft material in that nasa studio and I, i and i know for a fact that our the group learned so much from the graduate students in the class about how to think about space and how to think about how something like a coffee machine would work over there because that was like one of our first projects like make a coffee machine espresso machine for the international space station and um yeah i think more of those studios would i think i was expecting more of that as well Be- because towards the end we were just graduate students with graduate students that was just like the first few semesters yeah yeah also think talking about like classes i think i was reading this book by um mike montero i think that's how you pronounce his name montero called ruined by design and uh i know a lot of people have like mixed feelings about that book and the way it's written and the tone have you read it i've read bits of it but i haven't actually gone cover to cover yeah yeah would so you recommend like, it in the end? with a grain of salt i yeah. think like there are some parts that um i connect with but i think the way it's written it kind of feels like i don't know how to say this um from a like a politically correct <laughs> point but uh i think um yeah 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 the series still keeps popping up on my computer oh my gosh Nothing well definitely read it don't skip it i would say that to begin with um it is something that i think everybody should read because there is no other um popular design author talking about ethics in this way but the way it's kind of written there's like angst and there's like anger and resentment and i'm not against that but i think the way it's projected in the book kind of puts me off at times because i think one of his like favorite authors slash designers was um uh papanek yeah papanek yeah and papanek's like known for being the angry child of design yeah. and like just like giving the middle finger to the industrial design society of america and all of those things and i think he really respects that but some language felt like he was trying too hard to like be the papanek of our times 
But I don't think what he's saying is wrong. I think ethics should be something that we're taught in school. And I think that is something that should be, um, I don't know, mandatory for every designer to at least know about. Because a point that he makes is very, I thought it was a good point. Like he says, would you, for doctors and lawyers, they have a code of ethics. Like the doctors have to take like a Hippocratic oath before their doctors. And the point is like, would you trust a doctor without the oath or like without a doctor who hasn't signed that ethic thing? Would you trust him with surgery? Similarly, like, would you trust a designer without an oath, an ethical code that she follows? Because right now, like even being in the Silicon Valley, I'm at the hub of like all these digital products that like are causing so many teen suicides and stuff like that. And I was thinking similarly in like a cigarette packaging way, should Facebook come with a label like this design causes suicide? Like a cigarette packet would say this causes cancer. Like why isn't that a thing? Um, Is it because it's not directly um, relatable or something like that? But I don't know. Sometimes I just think it's like these, the Silicon Valley has too much power in terms of dictating Mm -hmm. what happens. Like, Mm -hmm. what are your, like, I I don't know who, even if like somebody, if we talk about somebody setting the code of ethics, who sets the code of ethics? Do we set a code of ethic for like the umbrella design realm? Does, so like, does IDSA set the ethical code for all of design, which doesn't seem fair. So does then like ICAD, which is like the Association of Independent Colleges of Art and Design, do they set it? But that's just um, very American. Like, I don't know how to mm-hmm. go about that, you know? Oh, so much. I want to say, yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah. I mean, I completely, I mean, those are the questions that aren't even asked often enough, right? And yeah. especially with a purportedly top-notch, super theory heavy degree that we just both (laughs) scarcely secured. Um, It wasn't really front and center, right? Like there were maybe a couple seminars that were related to it, but um, I, I actually think that the ethical code for designers, I don't know that it can be imposed by a society as much as ingrained into future designers that their work, regardless of how, basic it may seem what to like design a nice Nalgene uh, competitor for the outdoor industry, you know, like any sort of basic traditional industrial design product or a poster or a logo for a company that does a certain thing. Like those things have outsized impacts on everything around. Like it's not really just making a thing for a person or a company. It's, um, I think instilling the idea that there are so many downstream effects to every design consideration or lack of consideration, I think that's where it starts because as soon as you start to see the design process as connected to adverse effects that have been happening, whether it's socially, environmentally, um, for years and years and years, decades, uh, (laughs) since Papanek really, um, I think when you're hit with the weight of that and you're properly informed about 
past cases of that and current cases of that, it's a lot easier to want that code of ethics or at least form one for yourself. That's obvious, right? I think the the doctor example is um, it's it's different in the sense that it feels so concrete, right? It's like this doctor is pledging this oath because he will be splicing open human bodies, right? And like Mm -hmm. dealing with the life of another individual human one at a time. And that the weight of that responsibility is so comparatively cut and dry. I think, you know, when we're, when we're making stuff, a lot of it is relegated to this like whimsical world of like, I love the feel of molten glass and the weight of, you know, uh, steel block in my hand and blah, 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 all this romantic language. And there is something to that, but I think it, it's more quickly disconnected to like, okay, when I put this product out in the world with this business model or for this client who is lobbying for this in Congress, like all of those things end up having real tangible effects on other people. And, um, I don't know. I, I just think if that was taught, the ethics would sort of emerge very naturally out of that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's my roundabout way of answering it. But it's, I think as long as the conversation keeps happening, which I've seen it happen a lot more in the past two, three years, um, which is good. I think it's almost impossible to ignore now with things like the climate conversation and democracy uh, at large. Um, it's hard to ignore for sure. Yeah. I mean, as you said, like, this is something that we've been fighting. I think not all all of designers, but like a lot of designers since Victor Papanek's time, starting with Victor Papanek, and where he like says that industrial design is like a killer, like a, like it should be banned mm-hmm. or something like that. But Yeah, there was <sighs> um, actually in, in in graphic design, the first sort of, formal public effort to address ethics in my opinion is (laughs) it's still sorely lacking but back then it was a bunch of signatories to this first things first manifesto um and they basically it was like the big graphic designers of the day and they essentially pledged to be like we shouldn't be working for big tobacco or like we should say no to marketing for cigarettes it was i mean that example you used about cigarette packet warnings i think it was it was cut and dry as as cut and dry as it could be at the time without a lot of complex consideration around the larger definition and eventual definition of design but it was like we shouldn't be putting our effort into stuff that clearly kills people that was the that was like the nascent i think of the conversation in the in the gd field but honestly i don't think it's developed that much um i yeah that but from now on i think it's only going to be more and more prominent so that can only be a good thing yeah but like even with graphic design there's so much ethics involved i don't i i don't know a lot about this but i think a part of the bauhaus designed for the nazi party at the time they were forced to in fact because otherwise you know you'd be killed um but Drawing that analogy, today, I think the excuse isn't as valid because if you like, if you say that um, we have to design for like tobacco packets or 
or like fizzy drinks and stuff like that because without them our company won't run for like small studios those narratives are still kind of like yeah so like i don't know i don't know like which side do i take like should small studios not be able to survive because the ethics stop them from designing for say like philip morris right it's like it's a hard one it is hard. And then it's like, is that business model good enough to do like a pro bono thing where it's like, okay, we work on the bad stuff so that we can work on the good stuff. And like, that's always going to be 50, 50 or 75, 25. Yeah. It's hard. Um, I think hopefully the demand also comes from, um, I hate saying this. I really do, but some of the demand and the power will come from the consumer mindset shifting to want more inherently ethical, um, work being done with companies that are more ethical and therefore hopefully there will be less, um, less, uh, explicitly bad companies out there that can, you know, sustain your portfolio or your paycheck or whatever. But ugh, I almost want to take that back. Cause I think, I think the weight put on consumer mindset is, is way, 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 way too much. Um, yeah, too little, too late, always. It's kind of an easy out, right? It's like doing what designers are more comfortable with because they traditionally work within a commercial market, but that doesn't mean that the way to fix things is to get better, you know, consumer demand, <laughs> always. Sometimes it is, sometimes it yeah. is, but... No, I mean, in, in the current economic system, like a lot of the times, like consumers do drive whatever's happening. Yeah in terms of demand, but things like, I don't know how it works now, but like fashion, for example, that's kind of the other way around where trends are kind of set. It, It goes back and forth really, but I don't think the consumers have a lot of, I don't know if I should say that, but cause I don't know anything about that really, honestly, but I'm still gonna say it. I think that the industry has more um, of an influence over what trends are in the mm. fashion fashion realm, at least. But in terms of like products, I think, yeah, there are like two sides of the coin to everything. Like some, a lot of the times consumers don't know what they want and un, un, until they see the product, there's always the need that is set by the consumer that is met by the product. So I think in that, that way, the consumer still holds wheels more power albeit unknowingly right mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's i mean I, I guess it's a difference between like is it then a self-fulfilling prophecy like are you chasing your own tail if you put too much weight on how much demand existing there already is versus like how much do you want to like put out bait and see how well received it is and i, I think there are really interesting ways to capture the power of a consumer base without waiting for them to let you know what they want or what they need. Um, oh, that sounds so Steve Jobsy, but what I mean is more like from the ethical operations side, right? Where it's like, well, we can't really invest in recycled goods because there, we don't have the proof that it's going to make us the revenue we need to be, you know, to give our shareholders what they expect, blah, blah, blah. Versus like, I think there's a trend towards 
um, circular materials in the shoe industry. And so we're just going to take this risk and do it. And I think customers will want it after they see it. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's tricky because it just depends on the size of your company, like the, like how it's traded, blah, blah, blah stuff. I don't know about, but you know more about. <laughs> yeah. Cause that kind of directly relates kind of to my thesis in a way. Like I did a lot of research yeah. about circular economy, reusing objects that have already been manufactured. And I think, you know, going into that is, I think, um, I don't know. I, I think there should be a way to kind of connect industries. Like, for example, I don't know if I should say this on the podcast because it, this is a potential, like, potential business idea. But I don't think I'm ever going to do it. But uh, oh if, anybody, God, it <laughs> if anybody does it, go ahead. I'm just going to say that there's a way to kind of club industries where the waste of one industry is the input for another mm -hmm. and uh, if you read my thesis book you'll <laughs> you find out that you know there's a way to do that and provide clean drinking water and it won't be as expensive as it is now um and also that whole expensive clean drinking water thing is like some, it's a company bullshit that, you know, industries say it's not expensive to produce water out of the sea that you can drink desalinization, desalination, but it's expensive to set up the factory. And that's true for mm -hmm. anything. I mean, that's not an excuse. Of course, you're setting up a factory with machinery. Yeah, it's not going to be cheap. But like over the years, if you keep on doing it with the plan, that that cost gets spread out. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, speaking of like reusing yeah. objects, do you do you like Pink Floyd? <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as you were hit. <laughs> well, but I, yes, I'm you know, I've been listening to Pink Floyd since I was like a baby. Because I grew up on my dad's uh, cassette collection. So he used to like play Pink Floyd, Door, The Doors, Alan Parsons Project and all of those things in the background while like bottle feeding me. And so I think that wow. kind of like creeped into my subconscious. And, you know, if you listen to like Pink Floyd for 27 years, you, you think you'd know everything about there is to know about this band. But like two weeks ago, I found out this rare tape that Pink Floyd was trying to release as an album, as an EP rather, but they couldn't. So Pink Floyd had like Alan Parson as their sound engineer. And so Alan Parson was this really talented person and he had his own band called Alan Parsons Project. Um, and they, the, the studio album was going to be called uh, Household Objects. So they were trying to like take things like uh, the dishwasher and the washing machine and cups with different levels of water to to like make those shimmering noises and stuff like that and all of the tracks so in a song every instrument or every element that adds to the whole song is called a track so like all of the tracks were kind of made via these objects but they took like so many years to figure this out but they never could and i think alan parson said that it was a shame that they never really figured it out and they stopped trying because 
after like three years of trying or so, they launched the Wish You Were Here album. And then that kind of like, you know. Yeah. Uh, but they yeah. did end up using one track from the Household Objects in the Wish You Were Here album. It's in the song Shine On You Crazy Diamond, where it, it begins with the shimmering sound, like sh- and so that's the that's the glasses filled with wine glasses filled with water at different levels. So they ran their fingers along the rim nice. to make that shim. Yeah. yeah. Little fact. Nice. <laughs> Wait, so how did you stumble upon this new was it like new to the world or is it new to you? New to me, I think. But it's kind of rare, okay. but because according to the YouTube comments, a lot of people were surprised. <laughs> A citation I, you do not want to use too often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I read it on an article that uh, household Same. objects like the rare. Anyway, yeah. Wow. That's cool. No, I mean, I think that's, I, I mean, when you said that, it reminded me of what well, I think this is like uh, too many years ago for me to remember the details, but maybe it was Jay Dilla. But anyway, um, it was someone with the weight of Jay Dilla in the history of that genre that they discovered like a bunch of tapes that, I mean, obviously he's, he's dead, but like having this extra trove of raw work that he did was so, so, so exciting. Like people totally lost their shit over it. It's, it's really interesting to think about that as, you know, like if, Jay Dilla were, now I'm assuming that it was Jay Dilla. I think it was. Um, but like, if he were alive, I don't know how excited he would be that his like some raw tapes of his recordings, like process work were released to all his hungry fans. Like, I, I don't know, not that it has a lot of speculation in one sentence, but I just wonder, like, it's an interesting thing to finish the canonical set of work that you admire and then for there to be more that you didn't know about is like a really special feeling right like I just finished one of the first novels I read in way too long and it was so gripping and immersing and it was kind of brutal in the sense that the story was super dark but it's The Road by um, uh, Cormac McCarthy um sort of read it randomly, but when it was over, I had that feeling that I haven't had in a long time after a book where you're just like, ah, oh, it's over. Like the rest of it, I can just think about in my head, but there's no more like from him. Um, yeah, that's really, it's an interesting dynamic that artists can create um, with their audience that way. I think that's something that doesn't really happen in design. Yeah, I think so. Rarely like you would think, oh, here's another teacup set made by this designer (laughs) that we never knew about, you know? (laughs) But I think, especially in terms of like music or books, I wonder if that is, because an artist really like, you know, thinks about what they put out in the world and how much of it they want to put out in the world. Because the consumer, if they like the particular artist, they they will always want more. But the artist always wants to restrict how much they give out because they want to kind of curate the quality, right? So like releasing unfinished tapes or unmastered tapes. I wonder if that like after, especially post-mortem, like after the death of an artist, I wonder if that is what the artist would have wanted, you know? Because that is definitely what I want. Like if, 
if every member of the Pink Floyd passes away one day, like, and suddenly they're like, here are five albums that Pink Floyd never released, I would like flip. But most of the time when you listen to it, you you think like, oh, this wasn't as good. Yeah, obviously, because that's why they never released them, you know? So I wonder if that's like good or bad. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it feels like to consider it part of an archival part of their work makes it equally interesting without like the pressure of comparing it to a studio album, probably. I think so. Well, that's a good uh, food for thought. I think we should wrap up. Um, Well, it was a great, I, I thought it was a great first episode, Irina. It was lovely chatting with yeah. you. Yeah. It was super fun. Yeah. I didn't, I felt this surprisingly, and now we're getting into the meta notes of the podcast, but I definitely felt more like chatting in studio, but with less aimlessness, just because we had some kind of structure, but it didn't feel that overly formal to me. So this is super nice. It's it's, great. It's always good to talk to you. You as well. Yeah. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again next week.